Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Please stay standing for today's scripture reading. And we're reading John chapter 20, verse 11 through 23. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. We all have moments in our lives where we pass through these moments and everything changes. A moment in our lives where once we pass that moment, nothing is ever the same again. I remember in the summer of 2015, I had a moment like this. Uh, My wife and I, we loaded up a U-Haul truck and we put everything we owned in this thing. And we drove all the way across the country and on a clear, bright, blue sky afternoon in June, we passed over the Verrazano Bridge. And as we made this passage over the Verrazano into Brooklyn, our lives would never be the same. Um, I know that what is considered to be a real New Yorker is up for debate among especially those of you who grew up here. But for me, that passage over the Verrazano was when marked the moment where I became a New Yorker. And I've cherished that moment because New York has been where my kids have grown up. New York has been where my youngest daughter was born. It's where my nephew was born. It's where some of the best years of my marriage have happened. It's where I've been able to have the privilege of pastoring you guys. And for a small town kid, driving over the Verrazano in a packed U-Haul marked a passage in my life. And my life has never been the same since that moment. 
And we all have moments, moments where we pass from one thing to another and nothing is ever the same again after that moment. Moments that when we pass through them, everything changes. Sometimes we even symbolize those moments by rituals. And what do we call them? Rites of passage. Weddings, graduations, all sorts of ceremonies that mark time that say once this moment has been passed over, everything is different. The Greek word for Easter is the word pascha, which literally means as a verb to pass or as a noun passage. It conjures up the image of the Exodus account where death passed over God's people. It brings also to mind the Israelites passing through the Red Sea, passing from slavery and into freedom. Most significantly, Pascha, when it refers to Easter, refers to Jesus passing from death to life, a moment of passage in which nothing has been the same since that moment. And this is what we celebrate at Easter, that Jesus, after being crucified and buried, rolled his very own tombstone away. And he passed. He literally crossed a threshold, a grave into life. He crossed from death into life. And that gives us, I believe, if we are followers of Jesus, it creates a passageway for us. Just like the Verrazano, and I know Staten Island is New York and thing, and I'm not saying Staten Island's not real New York, it is. But just the same way that Verrazano represented a passage from me being a small town kid into becoming a New Yorker, the tomb, the empty tomb of Jesus represents a passageway that leads leads us from despair and into hope, and a passageway that can lead us from fear into peace, and a passageway that can lead us from confusion into joy. The resurrection of Jesus opens up a passageway for us, where in the very darkness of death, of our tears, our fears, our doubts, light begins to shine through, the stone is rolled away, and we can pass into abundant life. You know, we've been studying the Gospel of John for over a year now, and we're coming to the very end, the conclusion of this book. And together, we're, today we're looking at John chapter 20, and in this chapter, Jesus makes three unique resurrection appearances. He's been crucified, and now he comes back and appears before many of his disciples. And in each of these encounters that we're going to see today... We see people living in despair, we see people living in fear, and we see people living in confusion, but the resurrected Jesus steps into those moments and he offers them a passage out of their fear, out of their despair, out of their confusion into new life. And he offers them a moment where everything changes. And the first thing, the first encounter we see, Colette just read for us, and this is the encounter with Mary Magdalene. And this is a passage from despair and into hope. You know, there's a lot of despair in our world today, isn't there? Um, social scientists say that our nation is fa facing what's called a crisis of hope. We are facing a crisis of hope these days. We just went through a global pandemic, or we're still going through a global pandemic. I don't know if you've seen the prices of eggs and milk lately, but inflation is soaring. Gas prices are through the roof. Housing prices are pretty much making it impossible these days for the middle class to even own a home, what once used to be sort of a dream for everyone. The middle class is shrinking. Gap between rich and poor is growing greater than it's ever grown. And to sum it all up, the rent is just too darn high. Can I get an amen? Amen. <laughs> 
Political polarization, tribalization, those things are fracturing families and friendships. How many of you have had a close friend, a relationship get fractured over politics in the last six years? Average life expectancy has dropped by two years in the last five years in America. This week, there was a terrorist attack, what we believe to be a terrorist attack on our subway system. It's hard to be hopeful, isn't it? (laughs) Boy, it's hard to be optimistic right now. And as a result, many people in our nation are losing hope, and we see this in the opioid crisis. We see this suicide rates have risen 35% in the last 20 years. We live in an age of despair. And in our scripture today, we see a woman, Mary Magdalene, who was in total despair. She was in complete despair. She's standing outside the tomb of Jesus, and the scriptures tell us that she was sobbing. She was weeping. And you've got to understand the level of despair that Mary Magdalene feels in this moment. This is a woman whose life was completely and utterly changed by Jesus, transformed by Jesus. The Gospel of Luke tells us that she was a sinful woman. Now we can conjecture what all that means, but when we don't really know what that means, but what we do know that it means is that she had a past and she was an outcast because of it. The Gospel of Luke also tells us that she had seven demons that Jesus healed her of. So what we know about this woman is that everyone else had written her off. Everyone else had cast her aside, yet Jesus, in his mercy and in his grace, he steps into her life, he welcomes her, he healed her, he rescued her, he dignified her. her. Jesus utterly changed her life. And I don't often recommend movies and television shows about Jesus because most of the time they're corny. But if you've ever seen the show The Chosen, they capture this transformation of Mary Magdalene's life when she meets Jesus so perfectly. Jesus has completely and utterly transformed her life. the, The way she sees herself, the way she moves about in the world has been completely changed by Jesus. And now he's dead. And she's got nothing left. And all she wants to do is she wants to pay her respects at the tomb. And now even his body is gone and she can't do that. And so she's going, I have nothing now. I've got nothing. And so she goes inside the very tomb where Jesus used to be and his clothes are now folded up and she sits down and she begins sobbing. She's got nothing left. This is complete and total despair. A couple years ago, um, I read through the Chronicles of Narnia with my daughters. Anybody fan of the Chronicles of Narnia? Um, In the first book, and it is the first book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Susan and Lucy uh, are the little girls, the protagonists of this story, and they're mourning the death of Aslan the lion. Aslan was their leader. He was their friend. They loved Aslan, and Aslan sacrificed his life for Susan and for Lucy and for their brothers so that they could live and so that all of Narnia could be free. And at this moment, this is a children's story. And so the children are reading this story and they may be coming, many of them reading this and they're coming to grips with death, maybe in an intimate way for perhaps the first time as they read this story. And C.S. Lewis, the author, he pauses at this moment from the story and as the narrator speaks to the children who are reading the story. 
And he says, I hope no one who reads this book has been quite as miserable as Susan and Lucy were that night. But if you have been, if you've ever been up all night and cried till you have no more tears left in you, you will know that there comes in the end a sort of quietness. You feel as if there's nothing, and you feel as if nothing is ever going to happen again. And he says, at any rate, that was how it felt to Lucy and Susan. And I wonder if you in this room have ever had a moment of despair like that, where you've cried every tear that you have, and there's no more tears left, and it feels like nothing will ever happen again. If you've ever been to that place of despair, I know many of you have. That's what Mary Magdalene felt in this moment. And then a voice speaks behind her and says, woman, why why are you weeping? (laughs) Whom are you seeking? And she turns around and it's just the gardener. It's just the gardener. So she's so disappointed. She says, look, man, if you've taken his body, just give it back so I can do something with it. So I can take it. And the gardener says, Mary. And something about the way he says her name, she realizes it's not the gardener. She realizes who it is. You know, Jesus said earlier that he is the good shepherd and that the sheep know his voice. And when he said Mary, she realized who it was. And it wasn't the gardener. It was Jesus himself. And in this moment, she turns around and she sees Jesus alive. He's no longer dead. There's wounds. Uh, He's still got the nails, the nail holes in his hands and his feet. But he's there. He's standing. He's in the flesh. And she throws her arms around him. And she clings to him so tightly as if to say, I will not lose you again. You're not going away this time, Jesus. And Jesus says, Mary, let go of me. Go to the rest of the group and tell them that I am alive and that I will ascend to my father and your father, to my God and your God. And it says that Mary ran and went to the disciples and she preached, she announced, she proclaimed, she shouted, I've seen him. He's alive. And in a brief encounter with the resurrected Christ, she passes from despair and into hope. She goes from a woman sobbing at the tomb to a woman being the first person to ever preach the gospel of the resurrection. On Wednesday this week, my wife posted on Facebook about the despair that she often feels as the mother to a special needs child. Our oldest child has cerebral palsy. And this is what she said in her Facebook post. She said, yesterday morning, I cried a lot. And it was even before I heard about the subway shooting. I toured a special needs middle school for my oldest baby who is 10 and a half years old today. And he is moving out of his elementary school class after this semester. I cried because how did we get here? How did time go by so fast? I grieve for the things my son has yet to accomplish, basic things. And she said, as we are nearing the end of elementary school and I'm facing this huge milestone, I'm feeling the losses. Loss of what I thought, uh, thought would be at this point. Loss of dreams that I had when I started the parenting journey in 2010 as a naive newlywed. Loss of the comforts of kids ministry and assumed childhood as my big kid is now my size. I would say he's bigger than her if you've seen him. And she says, special needs parenting involves regular acquaintance with despair while clinging to hope. 
She says, I also know that for me personally, my faith in God helps me to know that there is a greater picture of redemption being displayed in my family, in the way that I am being shaped through hardship, and in the hope of what is to come. And then she quotes John 16, where Jesus says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. My wife says, special needs parenting, and I might add, you can fill in the blank there, whatever you are struggling with, divorce, loneliness, depression, loss, sickness, despair of any kind. She said, all these things involve regular acquaintance with despair while at the same time clinging to hope, the hope of what is to come. And you say, okay, I know regular acquaintance with despair, but what is this hope that you're talking about clinging to? What is this hope? It's the resurrection of Jesus. Did you catch what Jesus told Mary when he said, let go of me? He said to her, I will ascend to my God. That's normal. Jesus was always talking about his God, his father. But he says to her, he says, I will ascend to my God and to your God. He says this to Mary, to my father, and he tells Mary, to your father. Jesus says that it's not just my father, it's your father. The resurrection of Jesus, Jesus is trying to explain to Mary, has made it possible for us to be children of God. God is now our father because Jesus on the cross has paid the adoption fees with his blood. And Jesus himself says that my father is now your father. And Jesus told his disciples, I'm in my father's house. There are many rooms and I'm going to personally go and prepare a place in my father's house for those who believe in me. And when he says, my father is your father and I'm going to ascend to him, he's telling Mary, I'm going to prepare that place for you. You see, the book of Revelation tells us that in the father's house, In that room that he's preparing for us, there's no weeping because there is no death and because there is no sickness and because there is no loneliness and there is no cerebral palsy. And the father himself, not just Jesus' father, but now our father will wipe every tear of despair from your eyes and from my eyes when we get to that place. You see, the resurrection created a passageway, not just for Mary, but for you and me to pass from despair and into hope. We are acquainted with despair, but we cling to hope. Hope that Jesus is alive. He is with our Father now, and he is preparing, to, preparing a place for us. To quote old preachers from the old days, our trouble won't last always. Jesus has, decla- has created a passage that we can travel from despair to hope because he has risen from the dead. But he has also created a passageway from fear to peace. And we see this in his encounter with the disciples. You know, the well-known science fiction author H.G. Wells, he lived through the dark days of the Blitz in London, if you've ever read about those during the Second World War. And one evening... One of his friends found him outside of his apartment. He was in the street shaking with fear. And they said, H.G., what's going on? He said, you know, it's not the bombs. It's the dark. I've been afraid of the darkness my whole life. And there's so much to fear in our world, isn't there, right now? Wars, viruses, shootings, politics. Turn on the news. You know what they're trying to, you know what emotion the news is trying to get you to feel? 
fear. There's fear everywhere. We're told to be afraid. Be very afraid. It doesn't matter what news channel you watch, but they're trying to tell you that the other side is about to wreak havoc on your life and there is much to be afraid of. And there, are, there is much to be afraid of. But what most of us fear the most, I think, is the uncertainty that fear brings. What's going to happen to us? What's going to happen to my life, we think? And this is exactly what the disciples were wrestling with as they locked the doors in that room in Jerusalem. You see, it says they locked the doors for fear of the Jews. They're not talking about Jews in general. They're talking about the Jewish religious leaders. Why were they afraid of them? Because those are the people who just put Jesus to death. And what are they afraid that they would do? The exact same thing. These Jewish religious leaders have just orchestrated and manipulated Jesus into being crucified on a cross. And now they're thinking, we're his followers. They just killed Jesus. They're coming for us next. So they go upstairs, they lock the room, and they cower in fear. They're afraid. They thought, surely they're coming for us next. So they huddled together, they locked the doors. And then Jesus shows up in the room with them. And you know what his first words to them were? Peace be with you. Peace be with you. Shalom. He says, I know you're afraid, but I'm here now. And you can have peace. You don't have to fear any longer. Why? Why do they not have to fear any longer? Because what was it that they feared? They feared the religious leaders. What did they fear the religious leaders were going to do? Crucify them on a cross. Have them killed. What they just did that to Jesus, and now what's Jesus doing? Standing there. So now they realize in this moment, the thing we fear the most, Jesus has defeated. If we're afraid of death, Jesus just defeated. They don't have to be afraid anymore because Jesus has conquered the very thing that they were most afraid of. And it says in that moment that Jesus told his disciples, he said, unlock the doors, guys. Unlock the doors. I'm sending you into the world and you will preach of my resurrection and you will tell that new life is possible through me. You'll be persecuted. You may even be killed for it, but go with peace. Tell the world that I've risen and I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And then the scripture says that he breathed the Holy Spirit on them. Now time out. These guys are in a room with locked doors Doors locked. A few weeks later, if you've ever read the book of Acts, these same guys are standing before the very people that killed Jesus saying, you guys killed Jesus, but he's alive now. Every one of these disciples, history tells us, was martyred for preaching the gospel. What in the world changed from these guys cowering in the corner in fear with a locked door to going out into the ends of the earth and dying for Jesus? They became convinced that death was nothing to fear because Jesus had defeated it. How did they pass? They walked through the passageway from fear into peace because they realized that Jesus has already defeated the thing they fear the most and he promised to be with them the whole time. David wrote in perhaps the most famous psalm in the Bible, he said, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Gardner C. Taylor, the great preacher from here in Brooklyn in Bed-Stuy, he said, we may be called to walk dangerous and treacherous paths and our road may wind and twist up steep and perilous curves, but we will never walk 
beyond the Father's view. We are always in view of the Good Shepherd. Timothy Keller, some of you may know that name. He's a retired pastor here in New York City and somewhat of a hero of mine. Uh, both through his books and his writings, but also through some training that uh, he's, been, he's provided to pastors all over the city over the years. Well, um, he is uh, currently uh, dying of pancreatic cancer. And if, you've, if you know who Tim Keller is, it's really been amazing to watch. He's continued his public output. He's writing, he's speaking, lecturing, even as his body is wasting away with stage four pancreatic cancer. And he's dying with such grace and confidence that everybody's like, how are you doing this? How do you have such confidence and peace even as you're dying? And this week, he was even interviewed by the New York Times, and they asked this very question. They said, okay, it's Holy Week. Can you reflect on your suffering, on how your suffering has changed, how you think about the suffering of Jesus and also Easter? And this is what Tim Keller says to the New York Times. He says, Holy Week gives you both death and resurrection. They don't make any sense apart. You can't have the joy of resurrection unless you've gone through a death. And death without resurrection is just hopeless. Essentially, the death-resurrection motif or pattern is absolutely at the heart of what it means to live a Christian life. And actually, everything in life is like that. With any kind of suffering, if I respond to it by looking to faith in God, suffering actually drives me like a nail deeper into God's love, which is what cancer has done for me. He says, I do think that the great thing about cancer is that Easter does mean a whole lot more to me because I look at Easter and I say, because of this, I can face anything. He said, in the past, I thought of Easter and the resurrection as a kind of optimistic, upbeat way of thinking about life. But now I can see that Easter is a universal solvent. It can eat through any fear, any anger, any despair. I see it as more powerful than ever before. And then he says, yet if we come to the place where we accept the resurrection as fact, then suddenly there's no limit to the kinds of things you can look forward to. And he says to the New York Times, he says, I know some of your readers are thinking, I can't believe there's a person with more than a third grade education that actually believes that a man rose from the dead. He said, but I do. And these last few months, as we've gotten in touch with these great, this great truth of our faith, Kathy, his wife, and I both would say we've never been happier in our lives, even though we're living under the shadow of cancer and certain death. The disciples, Tim Keller, are both saying, because I believe in the resurrection, even my greatest fears, as real and present and threatening as they are, they do not consume me. Because if Jesus overcame death, I can overcome. Faith doesn't change our circumstances, but it does put our fear and worry and anxiety in its proper place. Faith in the resurrection offers a passageway that can lead us from fear to peace. What is the worst that can happen to us? Really, truly, if Jesus rose from the dead, what is the worst that can happen to those who follow him? And you may say, well, that's good for Tim Keller. That's good for the disciples. And that's maybe good for the rest of you. But I have a hard time believing that a dead man rose from the grave. I wish it were true, but I just struggle to believe it. Some of you may be saying that in your heads right now, and that's okay. 
Because to quote Lin-Manuel Miranda in Hamilton, you simply must meet Thomas Thomas. Not Thomas Jefferson, but Thomas the disciple. Verse 24 says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other's disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the hands, uh, unless I see his hands and the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. And eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them this time, although the doors were locked, and Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed, Thomas, because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You see, with Thomas, we see a passage from confusion and doubt to joy. See, when Jesus appears to his disciples, Thomas was away. We don't know what Thomas was doing. Maybe he was getting supplies. Maybe he was getting food because they were afraid they were going to stay locked up for a while. They were going to quarantine as a group um, until everything passed over. We don't know where Thomas was. He may have just been out alone. He wanted to think. Maybe he was going to get coffee for the group. We don't know. But what we know is that he wasn't there when Jesus appeared to the rest of them. And when he returns, I can imagine that he walks in, probably hands full with supplies. Hey guys, I'm back. Is everything okay? And they, everybody bombards him when he walks through. Thomas, you're not going to believe this. He's alive. Jesus is alive. Think for a moment what that must have felt like for Thomas. He's grieving. He's lost his teacher, his rabbi, his best friend, and he's trying to make sense of the last few days. He steps outside to go get a little quiet, to go get some supplies or whatever, and he walks in and everybody says, hey, Thomas, everything's great, everything's fine, and they're all happy. Jesus is alive. I bet he felt like they were playing a cruel joke on him. He's like, what kind of sick joke is this? And he's going, why are you guys saying these things? Why are you guys so happy? And then maybe he started to feel like he was going crazy. You know, are these guys like gaslighting me or something? Like, are they, what is, am I, did I miss something? What's going on? All these people around me, they have so much certainty. They have so much faith and they're happy and they're clappy and they're singing and they're joyful. And I'm still trying to make sense of all the death that surrounds me. What is going on? Maybe you've, ever, maybe you've felt like that before. Maybe you feel like that now. You're like, all these people raising their hands, singing these songs, what is going on? Like, I, 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 they believe, this, but I, I, am I missing something? I just can't get there. How can these people be so sure? And you see, Thomas had good reasons to believe in the resurrection, didn't he? I mean, he had good evidence. He had the word of his most trusted friends but yet he still doubted. And I believe we have good evidence to believe in the resurrection. I believe that there is good evidence to believe that the resurrection is a historically reliable event, and there are many great books and lectures that I believe that I could, come talk to me after the service, I can point you to. But yet, we still have doubt, don't we? Or maybe you do, and the scriptures even tell us, Jude 22 says, have mercy on those who doubt. 
Have mercy on the Thomases in your life. And there's a detail that I noticed this week that I'd never noticed before. And that is that Jesus waited eight days to appear again. Eight days. You know how long that must have felt for Thomas? He must have felt like he was losing his mind. Everybody's so happy and excited. And like oh, a week goes by. And he's like, I, what are you? Like he, he's just losing it. Eight days to wrestle with confusion and doubt and all this. And then Jesus shows up. And remember, Thomas was a big tough guy. He said, I won't believe until I put my fingers. And then Jesus walks in the room and says, Thomas, hey, stick them here. And Thomas says, my Lord and my God. And can you imagine how good that must have felt for him? Because he was longing. He didn't know if it was true, but he wanted it to be true. And then Jesus steps in and he sees that it is true and he just falls down and says, oh, it's, oh, it is true. It is true. And his confusion and his doubt in that moment turned to joy. And Jesus then says, Thomas, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not yet seen and yet have believed. And then the Gospel of John kind of closes this way. It says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but, they are written, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Jesus says that there is a life-giving blessing to those who have not yet seen the risen Jesus in the flesh, yet believe in the resurrection by faith. And what is that blessing that comes in believing in the resurrection? Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Saved from what? Despair, fear, and confusion. You'll be saved from your sins, your grief, and your worry can be put into proper context and you can have abundant life with faith that God is with you, that he is for you and that he will never leave you and he will never forsake you. You know, for the early Christians, the resurrection changed everything for them. Their entire lives changed. For example, they typically worshiped as Jews on Saturday. That was the seventh day. But after the resurrection, they began worshiping on Sunday because this was the day when Jesus rose. And when early Christians began building churches, do you know where they placed the altar? Where they would have communion? They would place it facing the east, facing Jerusalem, because that's where the resurrection took place. They even oriented not just their lives, but their deaths toward the resurrection. They would place their feet, their graves, when they were buried, they would place their feet facing toward Jerusalem so that when Jesus rises again, their bodies will be lifted out of the grave and their faces will already be toward his. You see, this is the invitation for you and for me today to orient our lives toward the resurrection. And the promise, if we do this, is that when you orient your life toward this event where Jesus passed from death to life, you now have a passageway to move from despair to hope and from fear to peace and from confusion to joy in any circumstance. There's the old Easter song chorus that says, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. I can pass through hope I can pass through despair and into hope. Because he lives, all fear is gone. I can pass through fear and into peace. And because I know, oh, oh, he holds the future. 
My life is worth living just because He lives. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Let me pray for us, church. God, we thank you for the resurrection. We thank you for the cross because by the cross we know that you love us. And we thank you for the resurrection because by the resurrection we know that you're powerful enough to save us. And so God, today as we sing, um, we look to you, the resurrected Jesus. And because you've risen from the dead, we can rise. And so our lives, we, we trust you with them. We trust you to turn our despair into hope and our fear into peace and our confusion, our doubt into joy. And we ask all these things in your name. Amen.